I wish I had my family with me. Um, it's not good for man to be alone. And uh, that's all the more true um, as I was tossing and turning at about 2 o'clock in the morning last night. In no way a reflection on the hospitality I was shown by the bakers, but just um, I don't sleep well by myself anymore. And um, do wish that my family could be here and meet with you. It's, it's always an exciting thing for me when I have the opportunity to meet with God's people in another part of the world that I've not known and find out that um, we're everywhere and that God has His people everywhere. And I have all this family that I've never met before. I have all these people who are motivated by the same thing that motivates me. I have all these people who delight in the same things that I delight in. And for me, as a person who, who does from time to time struggle with doubt, I don't know if any of you ever struggle with doubt. Maybe, maybe I'm the only one who has those kind of struggles, but I don't think so. But for me, one of the great testimonies to the truth of the gospel is, has not been found over my life in the intellectual arguments uh, for the truth of the gospel and for the truth of a Christian worldview. But it's been that I've been in East Asia and I've been in the Midwest, I've been in the Northeast, and I've even been in the South and found that um, the gospel is true, that it rings true, that it transforms hearts, that it creates connections and relationships that you could not explain in any other way. It's not just a shared set of ideas, but it's a common heartbeat. And so I'm thankful for you, for your hospitality, and for you men that I was able to spend some time with this weekend, and you opening your hearts and lives to me. I'm grateful for that. And uh, again, have been reminded that this is all real. It is true. God is who he has declared himself to be. And the proof of that is written in your hearts, in your lives, in your faces. And I'm thankful to have had the opportunity to witness that this weekend. Our text this morning is found in Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 1. Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 1. The Apostle Paul was a conflicted man in many ways. And he carried to his grave um, a passion and a desire, which I think was in, no, was, was in part fueled by who he had been before he met the Lord Jesus on the road to Damascus. He was there when Stephen... Uh, gazed into heaven and saw uh, Christ in His glory standing, prepared to receive Him. He was there with those people who ground their teeth uh, down and rushed and threw Stephen from a cliff probably and began to cast stones at him. He was the guy they trusted to watch over their possessions while they murdered Stephen for preaching the gospel and saying the truth to them. He was the man who got permission from those in authority at the time to go from house to house and drag men and women out and imprison them because they named the name of Christ and declared Jesus to be the Messiah and to be the way um, into the kingdom of heaven. And with all of those memories that no doubt haunted him the rest of his life, he was a man who knew peace through the gospel that he proclaimed and he preached. And so this morning, I want to read, beginning in verse 8. 
of Romans chapter 1. We're going to read through to verse 17. Paul says, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit and the gospel of his son, that without ceasing, I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I want to know, I want you to know, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but have thus far been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among all the Gentiles." For I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. This is the word of the Lord. What we see, first of all, in this text is the example of a man whose heart was aflame. We see an example of a man whose vision had been expanded. At one point, the Apostle Paul had a vision of what it meant to walk humbly with his God. And his vision of walking humbly with his God involved dragging men and women, fathers and mothers, out into the streets and imprisoning them for embracing the Lord Jesus Christ. And he was a passionate man in that. He excelled in his vision, his understanding of what the will of God was. But his heart was captivated by a bigger vision. His heart was captivated by a better way. And that took place when he had a living encounter with the person of Jesus Christ. It wasn't just a new idea came down the pike that he found slightly more compelling, that satisfied some idle intellectual curiosities, some, some yearnings that he had had, some questions that he had always wondered about as he had sat with his rabbi and as he had studied the Word of God and as he had pondered the Old Testament and he had some, some loose ends that he wanted tied up. And he found a new way, some new, slightly better explanation, so he said, I'll buy into that. That's not what happened to him. But he had an encounter with a person. And it was a powerful encounter. And the encounter marked him. It transformed him. It reordered his entire life. It shook him to the foundation of who he was. And it energized him with a new mission. And the first question that I would have for you this morning as a preacher of the gospel is this. Have you had such an encounter? Have you met the resurrected Christ? Has He come to you? I lived in the church 
from the time I was on my mother's breast, from the time I was in the womb. I was in church when the doors were open. God moved very powerfully in my parents' life, um, just uh, especially uh, as I was a baby. And my parents were energized by that. And so we would, as uh, we had, my parents had three children in about four years, uh, spaced out about every year and a half. And for me, we got up not just to go to church on Sunday, but my dad, who was, who was a businessman, um, would get up on Sunday morning and he would take all of us to church an hour and a half early. And just to serve in the church, that's one of my dad's gifts. He's a servant to this day. It's where he finds his greatest joy. On Sunday morning, not only did I get up and come to church in Sunday school, but I got up, went to church, and vacuumed the church, cleaned it up. We cleaned the bathrooms. We made sure everything was in place as a family. With children 8, 6, and 4, we went and we cleaned the church. Not because our church couldn't afford to have it done, but because my dad, who was a deacon, took delight in doing that kind of thing. And so we would go and clean the church, and I'd love to say that I love doing it, but I didn't, but I endured it for the donuts that followed. And then we'd go for the donuts. And for my entire life, until I was about 17 years old, I went for the donuts. And I had spiritual experiences at camp, and at times I had a crush on a girl who was um, more spiritually minded than I was, and so I would pretend to be more spiritual than I was in order to get close to her. I know none of you have ever done anything so shameful. But I was motivated by those types of things. And I knew scriptures. I could quote scripture to you because I was there. I was in that environment. And those ideas made sense to me. But it wasn't until I made a right turn into a long driveway on a country road as a 17-year-old who despaired of life and wondered why someone whose life was so good was so miserable. And the thought came into my head from the outside that said, turn to God. And in an instant, I recognized that I had no living relationship with Jesus Christ. And that I had a lot of ideas that helped me make sense out of life when I needed to make sense out of life. And when I wanted to ignore them and it was convenient to do so, then I would ignore them. But although I had all of these ideas, I did not have a relationship with the resurrected person of Christ. And I met Him not because I was out seeking Him, but because in my misery, the Holy Spirit prompted my heart to say, Bill, the problem with all of this is you don't really know me. You don't know God. You've not really met us. You've had experiences. You've gone to camp. You've thrown another log on the fire. You've read your Bible. You've memorized Scripture. But you don't know us. And as I was driving down Suzanne Bracken's driveway, I met the living Christ. And suddenly, no one had to tell me what I needed to do any longer because from the inside, I was compelled. And my question for you is, has that taken place for you? Have you met the resurrected Christ? He is alive today. He is enthroned. 
And He makes His presence known in this world. And even now, I believe He is here in our midst, that the Holy Spirit is here and has made the presence of God known to us this morning as we gather together and hear His Word. And the question is not whether or not you will hear these ideas and they will ring true in your mind and you'll go away and say, yes, that's a fairly decent summary of the things that I believe to be true. But the question is, will you recognize the risen Christ, His authority, His ability to give life to you? That it's not answers that you need, but it's Him that you need. That He is... The solution that He is that for which you are thirsting. The Apostle Paul had that experience. And as a result of having that experience, he was driven and compelled. What was he compelled to do? The Apostle Paul is so anxious to get to the people in Rome Because he wants to get some of what's going on there. See that. He's met the risen Christ. He's been energized. He's rethought everything in his life according to who I now know Jesus to be. And as all of his priorities have been realigned, as he's gone back and spent years studying the Scriptures, now what he longs to do is to go and experience what Jesus Christ is doing throughout the world. And he's heard that God is up to something among the Romans. And he's heard that throughout the world, there is a testimony being born that God is doing something. That Jesus' Spirit is at work in Rome. And he wants some of that action. He's compelled by it. And here's the question for you that's second. Not just have you met the person of Christ. But if you've met Him, has that resulted in you being compelled to go get in on His action wherever it may be? Paul knew that Jesus was busy. That His kingdom was being built. That there were lives that were being transformed. And he just wanted to be a part of it. Look at what it says in the text. He says, I've been praying for you. I've been longing to come see you. These are people that he doesn't even know. He says, for I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. I want to be a part of what God is doing. That is that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. It's not just I want to give you something as an apostle, but I want to get there, see what God is doing among you, and I want to get from you that which God is doing there. I long to be a part of what God is doing. I've wanted to come to you. I've tried to come to you so that I may reap some harvest among you as well as the rest of the Gentiles. He has an insatiable hunger to be a part of the mission of Jesus Christ. He wants some of that action. That's what he's motivated by. What excites him? What wakes the Apostle Paul up? What energizes him? What he spends his time daydreaming about is things like this. There's this group of people that I've never met, but I've heard that God is working among them. And I know that God has given me the gospel in a way that it would be good for them to receive something from me. And while I was there, I would get something from him. And he daydreams and he schemes and he thinks about, how can I get some of that? His heart has been captivated by that mission. 
And the question for us is, has our heart, have our hearts been captivated by that mission? Do we lay awake in bed at night thinking how we can share in and be a part of what God is doing through the gospel around us? Or do we lay awake in bed at night thinking about how we could get high-speed Internet access if only the cable company would run that cable down my road? Or how we can get a little more money so that we can get that car that we've seen so many commercials for and, oh, those people look so elegant in the commercials. And don't they look so happy? Or that we could finally buy that home that we've longed to buy, but we've not had the resources to be able to buy. Or that we could finally get this knucklehead liberal out of political office who thinks that he's entitled to all of my resources. And so we lay awake in bed scheming about political agendas. Not the Apostle Paul. Life got pretty simple for him once he met Jesus and he realized what God was doing in the world. He realized there's really only one game in town that matters. And I want some of that action. I want to get in. Put me in the game. Let me play. Let me on the field. And you see the struggle there, how even he's struggling against the providence of God. How I've longed, how I've tried, how I've labored, but thus far I've been prevented from coming to you. But it's my diligent hope, my sincere hope, that somehow I'm going to overcome all those obstacles and I'm going to make it to you. A group of people that he's never met, but he knows that God is at work there. And he longs to see, participate in, and be a part of what God is doing. Do you feel that way? There are two types of people, if you will indulge me in a sports analogy for just a minute. There are two types of people in, in games. There are the people who want the ball at the end of the game. And there are the people who are hiding from the ball at the end of the game. There are people who, when the clock is winding down, they don't want anyone else to be handling the ball. They want to be right in the middle of the action. They want to be there when it all goes down. Win or lose. They don't want to be a passive spectator. They want to be in the mix. They want to be spent. They want to end bloody and sweaty and messy with knees and elbows rubbed raw in a heap on the ground. But they want to be a part of it. That's the Apostle Paul. And my question for you is, is that you? Is it you? Or has some other agenda captivated you? Has some other agenda? And, and those agendas don't withstand the kind of lifelong energy. And so you have to move from one hobby to the next. From one new toy to the next. From one pleasure to the next. Because none of them are a sufficient enough agenda to command all of your resources. Command all of your creative energies. Command all of your hopes, all of your dreams, all of your ambitions. But the gospel is one such agenda. The thing that the Apostle Paul realized 
it's not just that it was the most exciting thing, because sometimes it doesn't seem the most exciting thing. Often, it doesn't seem the most exciting thing. Most of the time, it doesn't seem the most exciting thing. It takes eyes of faith to see it. But Paul's heart was held captive by this obligation, and it's our direction for us this morning. Paul said in verse 14, I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. I often wonder when I read that text, did the Romans wonder, are we the foolish or the wise? (laughs) If he wants to talk to everybody, which end of the continuum are we on? But what is the Apostle Paul saying here? He's saying it doesn't matter who it is, it doesn't matter where it is. I have a responsibility to them. And you say, well, that was Paul. He was, we call the apostle to the Gentiles. He was the man who was first charged with the responsibility of taking the gospel for the first time to the Gentile nations, to to working out the establishing of the church most clearly in its rawest form, That for which Christ died to create one new humanity out of the two, the Jews and the Gentiles, by destroying the dividing barrier. That was the passion of his life. It was the commission that God had given to him. That's him. That's not me. But I would argue to you that you have inherited that commission, that it's been passed on to you. Because what has been passed on to you is the same gospel. The same gospel that we see is the power of God and the salvation for everyone, both Jew and Gentile. It's the power of God and the salvation for everyone. And you have it. It's been entrusted to you. It's been given to you as a gift. And the question for you is, have you embraced that obligation You are obligated to the people who are around you, who live around you, who don't have what you have. It's been entrusted for you to hold as a steward and to dispense as a steward. Why are we all here? It's because someone was faithful in their stewardship of the gospel. It was that someone felt obligated to overcome a barrier, a difficulty, to bridge the gap between two people. And to entrust to you the message of the gospel. That it was the power of God and the salvation for you personally. That's why this church is here. And you have an obligation. You have a great opportunity. Somewhere in the neighborhood, am I right? 30,000 undergraduate students. Just down the road. Is that accurate? 30,000? Is that about right? Giant. 38? People from all over the world, no doubt, who are here in a period of transition in their life. Who don't look like you, maybe. Who don't think like you. Who don't believe like you. Some of whom are scary to you. Some of whom you don't want around your children or your grandchildren. But here they are on your doorstep. The nations brought to you at a period of transition in their life where they need hospitality where they need home, where they need a sense of connectedness. Not to mention the people who are all around you every day. 
the people with whom your children play sports. Last, last summer, um, I had two little boys on my baseball team who lost their fathers. One to murder, um, a, a, uh, the husband of his father's girlfriend had murdered him. The little boy had been with his dad the night before he was murdered and his um, and this man had shot at him. There was a bullet hole in the house while he was there sleeping in the house. The next day that man killed his father. Another young man. His father killed himself. Both were on my baseball team, in my life, in my home. And there were all kinds of issues that were associated with that. And it was messy. And we didn't know what to do. And one of the moms saw how we loved her son and saw the stability in our family and was driven to despair by it. Brought him to our house, dropped him off at our house, checked herself into a mental clinic. Said, I can't handle this anymore. Said, he'd be better off if he were with you. We weren't counting on that. (laughs) And we didn't have a good solution. And we didn't know what to do with it. And it drags some mess into our nice little white bread Americana homeschooled um, lifestyle. It was great. It's great. It's messy. We don't do that, and we don't engage on those kind of levels. We don't build those relationships because they're comfortable. We don't reach out to people and love people who have a different political agenda than us because it's comfortable. But we do it because we are under obligation to all types of people, both Jews and Gentiles, wise and foolish, Republicans and Democrats, hedonists and moralists. To all of them, we are under obligation. Why? Because we have life entrusted to us. And we've got to give it to them. Are you living life on mission? Have you embraced a sense of your obligation? The Apostle Paul didn't just have a sense of obligation that I grew up hearing about so often with evangelism where I was guilted into the fact that I needed to go tell people that they were going to hell and if I didn't, then I wasn't a good Christian. His obligation wasn't fueled by some sense of guilt or some sense of I've got to prove to everybody else how spiritual I am by how many tracts I hand out this week or by how many people I share the gospel with so I can get up in prayer meeting and tell people about somebody I've been sharing the gospel with and ask them to pray for them, not because I'm so much concerned for their soul, but because I'm really concerned with how other people perceive me. And if you don't believe that that's the kind of thing that goes on all too often in our hearts, You haven't been paying attention because it's happening. But what the Apostle Paul was energized by this robust confidence in the power of the gospel. He says, I'm not ashamed of it because there's a logical connector between verses 15 and verse 16. Where he says, because I'm not ashamed. Why is it that I'm eager to preach the gospel to you people who are at Rome? Why is it that I want to get there? Because I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And he doesn't say I'm not ashamed of the gospel because I'm such a courageous person. 
because I'm already lost everything and I don't have anything else to lose. So I might as well go all the way and really risk it and go to the seat of imperial authority and preach the gospel. That's not it. He says, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you at Rome because I'm not ashamed of it. Why does he say he's not ashamed of it? Look at the text. What does it say in verse 16? I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. See, Paul had come to see something. And I'll tell you this, it's addictive. It's addictive. When you begin to sit down with people, and you begin to love people, and you begin to open your life to them, and you begin to take on their burdens and their concerns, and your heart begins to break for them, and they sit at your table and you feel their anger and bitterness and their disappointment with God over the family they grew up in or over the fact that God hasn't provided for them a husband or over the fact that they've suffered some grave injustice at the hand of church leaders and life has disappointed them and nothing works over the child that they lost to disease over the ongoing illness that they are living with with one of their children. And you begin to look them in the eye and love them and hold out the gospel of Jesus Christ to them. And you watch death give way to life. As real as a dead man coming out of the ground. And you begin to see life where there had been only death. You begin to see dry bones grow flesh and blood. You begin to see bitterness turn to joy and rejoicing in the blink of an eye. You watch blindness fall away and people see for the first time and then take delight in what they are seeing. And you are there to witness it. And you begin to see the Gospel really is powerful. And you have a few people whack you around and hate you for a while. And beat on you. And slander you. And say bad things about you. And you walk away and the Spirit of Jesus comes to you and ministers to you. And gives you a comfort that only those who are persecuted know. That is so sweet that you think, I'm not afraid of persecution in the slightest anymore. Because through all these things, we, more, we are more than conquerors. We overwhelmingly conquer through all these things. That's what Paul's talking about. He's speaking about experience. He says, I'll delight in my sufferings and in my persecutions because they are earning for me a weight of glory that is eternal, that is so outstrips them all that it's not worth being compared to them. And by faith, he's tasted of that. And he's hooked. He says, go help me find a place where there's some people who haven't heard, where I can give them something, where I can watch them be born into the kingdom of God because there's nothing else like it. There's no greater joy. There's no greater delight. And there's no greater encouragement to faith. I'll tell you that as a pastor, one of my great privileges is being allowed into the dysfunction of people's lives. And you think, man, that doesn't seem right. How could you delight to step into all that mess? People entrust me with things they've never entrusted to anyone else. And I get to go into the darkest parts. People say, well, you're in the ministry. You don't know what the real world is like. And I say, no, I've been on both sides of that fence. 
And I know what it's like to, to work in the construction business, which is a tough business. Any of you who are in it know it's a tough, cutthroat business. And I didn't see near the sin and corruption in the construction business that I've seen in the ministry. Because I get to go deep into the human heart with people. And it's the sweetest thing to go into that place of despair and be able to hold out the hope of the gospel. And I come away from those encounters being energized as though I'd been in the very presence of God Himself because I have been. Because in that moment, the gospel ceased to be theory for me and it became practice. And I watched death give way to life. I watched sorrow give way to rejoicing. I witnessed bitterness give way to joy and forgiveness. And I know that it's true. And I don't need you to encourage me that it's true because I saw it just happen in front of my very eyes. The Apostle Paul was energized. He was obligated and he was made eager to preach the gospel because he had found in it the only real power in the world. And here's my encouragement for you. My encouragement for you is simply this, especially on a day where we have the opportunity to come and see displayed before us the body and blood of Christ given for us, is that the amazing thing, the power of the gospel is in this, is that in the gospel there is a righteousness that is revealed. We all know deep down that we need righteousness. There's a movie about a western gunslinger who was a, who was a murderer of some renown. And he goes into retirement after he's had his fill of bloodshed. But his wife, who is his saving grace, has died and he has children to provide for. And he has this opportunity for one last opportunity to make some money if he would kill some guys. And there's this young guy who wants to be a tough guy. And he's riding along and he's just excited that here he is with this historic bad guy. And he's like, yeah, we're going to get to go kill these guys. And the young guy ends up having to kill one of the bad guys. And after the fact, his conscience is killing him. And he thought it was going to be this great heroic thing. And at the end of the day, he just can't deal with it. And he's trying to find some comfort by getting drunk. And he's talking to this old gunslinger. And he's trying to comfort his conscience. He's saying, but he had it coming. He had it coming. And the old gunslinger seen through all that. And you tell he's already been through it. And he looks at the guy and he says, kid, we've all got it coming. We've all got it coming. And this is just a silly Western, okay? Deep in the human consciousness, we know that we don't have the right standing that we need. That when it comes to the law of God, we have come up short. And we are running from that realization. And what happens in the gospel is in the gospel, God reveals a righteousness for the unrighteous. It's a righteousness that all you have to do to get it for yourself is you have to embrace it. You have to believe it. You just have to lay hold of it. You just have to let go of whatever it is you're hanging on to make your life right. And you have to grab hold of it with both hands and say, this is my hope. This is my comfort. This is my life. That's why the gospel brings hope. And so for you, as you listen to this this morning, if you're a little bruised, And if you think, I'm not measuring up, 
I'm not living the way the Apostle Paul lived. I've let other agendas crowd out the agenda that I should have had. Then I'd say, I've got good news for you. In the Gospel, a righteousness is revealed that is from faith to faith. It's by faith, it's through faith, it's faith from beginning to end. And that if this morning you will lay hold of it, and you will embrace it, you can know the freedom and joy of forgiveness. You can know communion with God. And you can draw near to God in such a way that your heart can be held captive by the person of God. And He can and will begin to put you back on mission. If you're here this morning and you say, I've never trusted Christ. I have good news for you. You don't have to work to make yourself good enough for Jesus. Because through the work of Jesus Christ, a righteousness that has been revealed is to be received only by faith. And it can be yours this morning for the asking. And God will take away from you all your guilt, all your shame, all your brokenness. And He will give to you the righteousness, the uprightness, the purity of the Lord Jesus Christ so that you can stand before God without fear and with great joy and call Him Father and have the hope of a glorious inheritance both now and in heaven to come. All of that through this Gospel. The Apostle Paul had embraced it. He had embraced it for himself. He had seen how embracing it for himself obligated him to all those around him. And he was energized by it. I want to encourage you as a church. I don't know much of you. But I see the opportunity that's in front of you. And I see the sincerity that you have. I want to encourage you, if you will permit me, as a visitor among you this morning, to say, get in on the action. Want the ball while the clock is winding down. Risk a little. Engage. Get your elbows and your knees bloody. And what you will find when you do that is that persecution is not a thing to be feared. Failure is not a thing to be feared. And that God meets you in the middle of it and He gives life to those who are in death. And you are transformed and they are transformed and God is glorified and life makes sense more than it's ever made sense. And church is exciting in a way that it's never been exciting. That's what God's called us to. May He give us grace to embrace it. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven.